0: Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den on Conclave Opening Day. So every year we have the Holy Smokes Conclave. It's our annual gathering where we have people come in from all around the nation and sometimes all around the world. And we do basically a lounge crawl, a home lounge crawl, a backyard crawl over the course of a weekend. And we've actually turned it almost into, almost into a full week thing starting on Wednesday night with our regular Holy Smokes gathering here. And then people that come in because they want to be a part of that Wednesday gathering. We started doing stuff on Thursday and Friday morning and then Friday night's the official kickoff. This year's at Paul's Backyard. And so my favorite thing about the conclave every year is twofold. One, finally getting to connect with people that I have been connected to in the group. We've become friends on Facebook, but we never met in person. That's just awesome. But the second part of being out here, of having people come out here, is getting to know new people. And that is today, because we have a member that has just been involved, I think this year you
1: joined, yeah, right? Two or- months. <laughs> two, two months, two and a half months, yeah,
0: two, yeah. And the posts that he puts into the group are so uplifting, and he's become really very quickly one of the staples that I enjoy watching in the group. And t- last night at Bourbon Brothers on the yeah. Thursday night, out on their patio, their smoking patio, I got to know you. And you because you had just come in from yeah. Dallas, from Dallas, yeah. And uh, dude, we absolutely hit it off on so many levels, and we'll get into that yeah. in the podcast, yeah. But uh, Roe-E-D. Roe-E-D, yep. Ruben. Ruben. Ngeraro. Ngeraro. Yep. <laughs> I, I got, I got it. Yeah. It's yeah, going to take yeah. me a while. It's going to take me a while to get it right. Yeah, but, yeah. Ruben, yep. my man. Yeah. Welcome to the Holy Smokes podcast Thank and you.
1: welcome to Holy Smokes and welcome to Colorado. Appreciate it. appreciate it. Yeah. So <laughs> enjoy being, I came here about five years ago for the first time. To Colorado. Uh, to Colorado. My yeah. wife and I joined the Navigators Ministry, so we came out to Glen Erie yeah. for a week of training. So yeah. that was my first trip. Beautiful, and just driving. Even here today, I was just like, because I kept hearing guys who uh, people who live here and say this never gets old, and I'm like, I understand that. It does. Yeah, I understand that never gets old. I mean, I was
0: showing you pictures of getting up into the mountains mm-hmm. and the scenery that you get up there while backpacking and yeah. hiking and yeah. driving, taking off off road trails and. It's an incredible state. There's so much to explore.
1: Yeah. yeah. So before I forget, I want to give a shout out to Jackie Hernandez. She's a really, really good friend of mine from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so she just joined Holy Smokes today. And I told her I was coming to this podcast and I'd smoke of my father's cigar in her honor. So <laughs> I do that for her. So. No, she's just an uplifting person. And you know, people are so important to me. I'm about relationships. And, yeah. and that's just been the course of, of my life. So, yeah. So
0: Ruben, first question is usually what you're smoking. How, how.
1: This is my father's cigar. Again, I am very new to this. Yes. I remember- New to cigars?
0: Huh? New to cigars? New to cigars. Really?
1: Really? Really new to cigars. I mean, again, I grew up, and a pastor's kid. Pastor's kid, African pastor's kid. I mean been yeah. no drinking, none of that. And yeah. I wasn't really interested in cigars yeah. uh, at all. I think I've smoked more cigars in two months than I have in 42 years. Because <laughs> I smoked <laughs> one maybe every five years. It just wasn't in my yeah. you know wheelhouse or yeah. my interest. Yeah. And so getting into this, I'm really beginning to learn from what you just taught me just a minute ago from Zach, trying to understand the flavors and yeah. the pairings and the language and just slowly learning it into and, 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 it. and it's often
0: just finding out what's good for your palate. Yes. I mean, because what's good for me may not, what really just resonates with me may not necessarily resonate with you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, it's just a matter of just exploring and yeah. trying. and.
1: And, and yeah. feeling what you know when I smoke, or so, how do I feel at the end of it? Mm-hmm. Like my my father's cigar here. I like it because I don't I don't get woozy. <laughs> like, and in the beginning, I'd smoke real quick, and people like, no, you got to take it slow. Yeah, you, you hold this, it's gonna every, burn out. You, th- every you light thirty it back seconds. Up. Every yeah. thirty seconds, just yeah. keep it going, just yeah. nice
0: and slow. And I your mean, palate. Have, yeah. I, I have I have some cigars that they'll last me two hours. Yeah, because it's just a nice slow burning, and exactly. you're in the middle of a great conversation, and
1: yeah. I had a firecracker, I think. I don't know who I said, but it was called a firecracker. A little small one. Yeah. That lasted like an hour. Really? And it was really, I think it was a higher, it was a stronger end one, and I loved it. I mean, yeah. and, and the palate thing is, I, like I never, when I started drinking beer, I had to, my palate had to get used to to different you know flavors, and eventually I, I was able to distinguish through it. And so now yeah. that's the phase I'm going through with, yeah. with cigars. And, and when we talk talking about pairing, it's like, what does that even mean, guys? So I'm learning <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that is. And that's the whole, you know, the crux of what I love is learning. Yeah. Learning new things. So there's Holy Smokes, but I'm also involved with coffee. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of learning in the coffee com- And their community is very interesting. So I'm learning about roasting. And I went to my first cupping. So just the ability to learn, you know, the, the particulars, but learn about people. So, yeah. Nice.
0: Yeah. Well, and I am smoking a Florida Sun Grown that Brian Olson just gave me. He gave mm-hmm. me like three cigars from that are Florida native cigars, okay. and uh, yeah, this is a solid stick starting out. So so you mentioned African Pastors Kid. Mm-hmm. You're born in Chad. Born in Chad. I don't meet a whole lot of people from Chad.
1: I know, Chadians are, if some, some people I say, uh, I'm born in Chad, I have a friend named Chad. Okay, <laughs> I understand what you're saying, but you know, it's not the same thing. But yeah, you know, a lot of people don't know where Chad is, and it's just real, literally in the heart of Africa. You know, it's
0: not that little, dude. It's a big... No, I mean,
1: a, in the heart, like, yes. not little, but small. But just, like, if you look at it and you point are in the middle, you'll hit Chad. Yeah. Just south of Libya, north of uh, Central African Republic, yeah. uh, Sudan is to the east. Then you have yeah. uh, Niger, Cameroon, and Nigeria that all surround us. So I was born in Chad in 1977. In 79, a civil war broke out between some rebel factions. So at that time, it was myself and my brother. And then what my dad did is he put us two and my mom on a missionary plane, missionary Aviation Fellowship. They Mm -hmm. flew us out of the capital, which is Jemena. Mm -hmm. My dad stayed behind. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this will go to, you know, the character of my father. He stayed behind in his little Peugeot. I don't know if you know those French cars, a little Peugeot car. and was Mm -hmm. filling people up, driving them to the edge of the city, coming back, picking up more people. And doing that while the fighting was going on. Thankfully, God spared his life. Wow. Then he joined us in the south of the country. Then we moved to West Africa. Uh, we were in Burkina Faso mm-hmm. uh, for, about, I think, a year, year and a half. And then through some relationships my father had with missionaries who'd been with him in the 60s and 70s, seeing him growing up, coming to the pastorate, um, they got him some money and, and moved us to the States to Deerfield, Illinois, at Trinity Divinity. So my father did his master's, I believe, in Old Testament theology. Mm-hmm. I think it was four and a half at the time. And then my sister was also born, so it was three of us at that time. So we spent two years there. Then we moved to Dallas, Texas in 1984. And my dad continued his doctoral work, uh, his PhD. And so I was there until I was about 12 years old. And then my brother was born. I forgot, I had another brother that was born in Chicago. And then in Dallas, my sister was born. So there's five, five kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then in 1990, my dad said, hey, we're going back to Chad. So he packed us all up. He hadn't even finished his doctoral work yet. So what he would do is when we moved back, I was 12, he settled us in, then he would come back every year for the next five years during the summers and continue working on his doctoral program until he graduated. And yeah, so he, when we were in Chad, he was the head of the Evangelical Churches of Chad for, I think, uh, maybe a dozen years and just some seminary work and all of that. Myself, I had a lot of issues, culture shock, I'm a third culture kid. You know, so go, being here and then going back to Chad when I was 12 and, you know, you go from having electricity 24 hours a day to have electricity maybe once every two months.
0: Oh, my gosh. Right.
1: You go from, you know, nice wow. house with indoor toilet and plumbing. You go there, this outhouse. Yeah. All right. You go here to eating three meals a day, snacking, whatever, to eating maybe one main meal a day at like two o'clock. In the morning, you may have bread and tea. Then you eat the main staple at two o'clock. And then at night, you may have some peanuts and that's your day. You know, wow. for food. So, you know, anytime I had a meal in front of me, I never said no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Especially teen, being a, you know, a preteen teenager. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so, uh, I, I admit I had a lot of struggles. And then at sixteen, my dad was like, "Okay, Ruben, you're struggling. You're not making a really good transition. So I'm going to send you back to the states." So he actually sent me. He contacted one of his friends he'd gone to seminary with, and they accepted the, that I come and live with them. So at 16, I moved back and, and I spent two years in DeSoto, Texas. Mm-hmm. I graduated from uh, high school there. I took a class in 96. Then after that, can't see it because we're on our podcast. <laughs> but we throw up signs. I moved from Dallas to DeSoto to SeaTac, Washington. So Seattle, Washington area. Because my brother was living there. So he, he, my brother had his own path that led him to Seattle. And then we connected there. And I was in Seattle for a year and a half. Uh, going to community college, and then we transferred to Wisconsin, to University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. Eau Claire. So that began my Midwest journey. Blue goals? The blue goals. The, the blue, goals. I, got the it blue right. goals. I got it right. The blue
0: I got it right. <laughs> you my, got it my, right. My, my, Not my, uh, many people know. My best friend yeah. since the seventh grade, he's uh, works for the Wisconsin Department of Justice, and he's an agent, uh, basically the number two, about to be the number one meth guy in the entire state investigating meth yeah. crimes. And uh, his daughter plays college basketball Yeah, for the Blue Golds. For the Blue Golds. For the Blue Golds.
1: And I heard recently they changed their name to something else. But we're still the Blue Golds. You know? <laughs> I actually ran into a guy three weeks ago yeah. in Red Wing, Minnesota. Yeah. At the, uh, so Red Wing Shoes is based yes. there. So I went no? to the museum and I took a picture of him and his son. And then we started talking. And I said, oh, I went to the University of wisconsin O'Clair," Claire. And he said, hey, Blue Gold. He was class of 1995. (laughs) So, and the funny thing about Blue Goals, they're everywhere. You know, we're a small school, but my sister who lives in Chad, two of her bosses were University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire graduates. And so, yeah, we're there. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, I was there for, uh, I finished, so I moved to Eau Claire in 1998, graduated in 2000. Um, I did my BA in political science. I really wanted to go not listening to government work like be a politician per se but work in campaigns and you know political you know, for political change and stuff like that but graduating i had to get a job you know start making money you know taking care of myself i actually moved to Iowa mm-hmm. for about almost a year i was a car detailer as one of my first jobs i loved that job you know that it was simple really? you know taking a dirty car learning about the chemicals how to clean it man we did some awesome work and then I got a job back in Texas to work with juvenile delinquents at the uh, Davy Crockett National Park area. Mm-hmm. So we're in the boonies just outside of Houston. And like we had to take spigots like there was no just cold water. We didn't even sleep in housing. It was basically a wooden floor and you had a small wooden bunk. And then the walls were just the thick plastic tarp that went halfway. And then the roof was tarp. And that was it in the woods. And so these were kids between the ages of 13 and 17 that either had been in the juvenile system. And so they came to this program for about a year and a half. And if they weren't successful, the next step was jail. But if they were successful, then they'd go back into to their community. So I look at that fondly. I, I loved working with those kids. And it was like God was preparing me to move back to Africa living in those conditions.
0: Now, you know, let's yeah. go back a little bit. Because yep. when your dad sent you back, you said that you were struggling. Yeah. He felt you were struggling there in yeah. Chad. Mm-hmm. Why? What was going on?
1: So again, 12 to 16, just imagine just a normal kid at that age. You mm-hmm. know, you're trying to find your identity. You're trying to figure out who you are. I just lived in the States. I, I mean, I moved here when I was four, so I didn't remember much of, of Africa. I just knew the U.S. And I, admittedly, part of that, I was just a hard, stubborn kid. I was just stubborn in the way I, I did things. And, you know, I'd go to class and I'd do my work, but I might mean, skip class a couple times and I got kicked out of school and I hung out with some guys that were very like-minded, but I think I just had a hard time adapting to the conditions of the country, knowing for where I came from. I had to learn French because French is the national language of Chad and I only spoke English. So,
0: so your parents didn't continue to speak that in the house? They when didn't you guys- speak
1: French in the house. They spoke our tribal language Gumbai. Okay. That's what they spoke in the house. And I'm glad you asked that question because they knew we were going to go back to Chad. So they would never speak to us English at home. They spoke oh. only to us in Gumbay. Yeah, And then we learned to understand it, which was great. So when we went home, when conversations were going on, we knew what was being said. We didn't respond. We responded in English. So I, I wasn't very good at speaking the language. But I think that goes a testament to my parents is like they're in America, but their intent was to return home. So they did everything in a way to say, no, kids, you're here, but we're preparing your mind you know, in your heart to return to Chad. So I think my father noticed, like, to your, again, to your question, he noticed that that's I was. That's admirable.
0: A, I gotta admit, that's really admirable. Okay, because yeah. when for your father, mm-hmm. because, and even in your story as well, I hear so often of people that leave and they come here and they're like, this is it. I'm staying here. I'm not. People that come from Africa or come from really any third world country that come here for the opportunity to learn and then take that information and those experiences and that you know Mm -hmm. education and go back to their home country Mm -hmm. that for me and in order to change that culture and help make it a better place Mm -hmm. those people in my opinion are so admirable
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I think even what my dad did in the coup was admirable and I get emotional about that I didn't understand that but he knew that he may not see his wife and kids, but he was not going to leave people. Wow. Like we were privileged to get on a plane. Yeah. Think about that. Like yeah. In 1979, yeah. on a plane. Imagine the other people who weren't. And he was like, I'm not leaving. And my, that's just has been his whole attitude. So when he came, he already had a vision. And, and you're right to that point, And maybe we could talk about it later that a lot of people don't return and I used to be judgmental of that, Steve, of, I, ju-
0: of, of, the, of, of those who, guys who
1: didn't go back, like Africans oh, who really? came okay. okay. and didn't go back. Yeah. But I didn't see the whole picture. And as I grew older and lived in Africa and understood different dynamics and nuances, I was like, oh, first one, I shouldn't be judging. But now that I understand, I'm even judging less because of the certain conditions and certain things that even hinder people from going back. All right, so I don't want to get into a lot of, what is like called, rabbit trails, but yeah, there's yeah. a lot to that than just, oh, the person didn't go back. So if you don't mind, I can give you a yeah, quick example. Yeah, 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 So you take somebody from Africa. and mm-hmm. I give you a, 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 churches in the U.S. They want to educate Africans and get them degrees, and then they can go back and leave their country. So you take somebody who's gone to high school in Africa, and then you bring them here, and they get a bachelor's degree in some seminary. Then they go on and get a master's degree. Then they go on and get a doctorate. Now you got a guy who has a Ph.D. and you're going to tell him to go back to what? Do you know the condition of the country? Is there an institution where his Ph.D. can bring him the money to care for his family at the level of education? Step number one. Number two, what is the economic conditions of the country? So now he comes here, he's working, maybe caring for his family. A garbage man in America makes more than a minister in his country. So there's economic implications and maybe he came single or he came married with one kid. In the time it takes to do all of that, he may have four or five kids. Now you got to think of what is he going, can the church in that country, you know, so there's all these. And then churches here sometimes are, I don't want to say cunning, but they're like, okay, we want you to go back. But now you have a PhD. Well, you've teached, there's an opportunity to teach at our, our college. But I thought that guy was going back. But you gave him such a high level of education, which he deserves. Now you keep him here. Because he has that degree, so even with my father, there was people who were saying no, stay, because they knew the conditions of Chad has been very volatile. But my oh, father's yeah. like, we are going, and that's the end of the discussion. So yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, we were talking last yeah. night about my trip to Africa to Sudan before oh. South Sudan before it was South Sudan, yeah, and uh, while it was still unified, and uh, you had mentioned, yeah, there are places in Africa where it's like it's pretty modern, pretty industrial, pretty commercial, and. Then there's the hardcore Africa. Yeah. He's like, bro, you, you were like, bro. I got
1: respect for you, man. You went to Africa for the hardcore on your first trip. Man, Sudan is hardcore. You know, Africa for the beginners: Kenya, Ghana, Zambia. Yeah. But you went to, when you told me the story, I was like, this dude's got some kahunas. <laughs> I mean, like, he's like, I wouldn't, there's some Africans who wouldn't even go to Sudan. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I am not want to go to Sudan. <laughs> so yeah.
0: your car detailing, what do you do after that?
1: Um, again, I said move to Texas. Yeah. Because an organization there was sponsoring my visa. So as an international student, you have a lot of steps. Yeah, And so they were taking what they call the OPT, optical practical training, which allowed me to work legally in the U.S. for up to one year for a company that would be willing to then move me over into a green card. Mm-hmm. So this organization did that. And then in the middle of it, and this is where I see God moving. And when, in my story, we talked about there's no coincidence. Mm-hmm. I truly, I do not believe in that when you're a believer. God is preparing things in the now for the later. So what happened is that that organization for 25 years, they were automatically financed by the state legislature of Texas. Automatically. No debates. It was just in the bills every year. That year, they took it out. Wow. It closed down. And so I had basically, I think, three or four options. I could find another organization that's willing to take the OPT. And that's very difficult because it costs money for the company or the organization. I could go back to school on an F-1 visa, but I, I just graduated. And I don't want to go back on an F-1 because it's a whole process in itself. I could stay legal, illegally in the country, but I wasn't going to do that. And my dad's like, that's not even an option, Ruben. You are not going to stay illegally in the U.S. And so my option at twenty one, twenty two was to go home to Chad. And so I packed up, not really knowing what I was going to do. And I flew into Abidjan. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire and then into Chad and started my my journey there. So the initial plan actually was to do a year and then maybe get a visa to come back to the States. I ended up doing 10 years. And in that 10 years, God really transformed my heart and my eyesight and my thinking really for Africa. Because you asked the question, how did I struggle? When I left when I was 16, I remember going to the airport. I was in the back of a pickup truck in Africa, you can still sit in the back of a pickup truck, even now, and stand up. And I remember driving away. I was like, I'm never coming back here again. I literally was thinking that. Mm. And what's, the, what's that? I tell that quote, you know, the best way to make God laugh is tell him your plans. <laughs> yeah. And in that 22, God shut all the doors down here for me and I had to go back to Chad. And he opened other doors. And not just other doors as far as working, but other doors in my heart and in my mind to see Africa in a very different light. Yeah. You know. How so? So number one, um, so I would say like the conditions, the living conditions are very different. So I was, you know, in America you're trained like, what your house look like and, you know, what kind of foods and you have all of these choices. And I didn't see that in Africa when I was young, but then I began to realize that the thing that Africa has that the U.S. didn't have is relationships, that people are always together, you always all your friends. Because I was talking to somebody who was from India through the uh, LinkedIn. And she put up a picture of where she grew up in India. And she said, that reminds her of how she grew up. And I said to her, remember, we were poor, but we were poor together. In America, you're rich, but you're rich alone. Mm -hmm. So what would you rather be poor and poor together? So all of the things that we were experiencing, I was experienced with other people. Mm -hmm. And then I had to also remember my privilege, again, as a Chachan, that I still had an opportunity to come to the States years later and through visas and friends that I had here. So my condition wasn't in a a situation where I could never leave. Then I began to go to the villages a lot more. My dad's village where he was born and my mom's village and hang out with some of the people there and the chiefs and start beginning. And I started to take in the history of the country and the history really of the church into that region that we now call Chad. And I was like, wow, Mm. this is awesome. And I'm part of that. And to find my place in there. And once God shifted that and said, Ruben, I need to quit looking at the physical and look at the spiritual aspects. And if you do that, then that's where I began to change a lot. Mm. So talk about the
0: history of your country.
1: So Chad is a former French colony. It got its independence in 1960. I think the French first came there in 1900. They established a French presence and administration because then you had the trade routes that would go to, to the Ivory Coast and it's, it's landlocked. You had Sudan that sits next door. And of course, at that time, there weren't countries. It was, just <laughs> it was just land. And so the French really took that part of West Africa. And so my father, for example, he remembers growing up under French colonial rule because my dad was born in like 43 or 44 yeah. and Chad didn't get independence until 1960. Yeah. And to me... I speak more, but to me is like when I speak to Americans, like you're like how many generations removed from the independence of the United States? It's like for me, my independence and in my family was just a generation ago.
0: Your dad was. My your, dad your was dad's there. generation was the George Washingtons Was the, George Washington. the Tom- they were under- really the Thomas Jeffersons yes. of. Exactly. Of their independence.
1: Yeah, so it's really close. And so I would talk to my dad's like, Yeah, when the French were here, this would happen and the roads were nice. And they, you know, they would do good things and bad things. And and then in nineteen sixty when Chad became independent, now you have to build a country mm-hmm. of people. So my dad actually got a scholarship to go to him and one other guy got us, uh, religious scholarships. The only two, the people got you know to be lawyers and doctors, and they went to France. They went to the U.S. They went to Russia. My mom went to Russia to be a, to learn how to be a house, uh, not a housewife, but to be a, what do you call it? Um, uh, help deliver babies. There's a word for midwife? that. Midwife. Midwife. Thank you. That's right. So help to be a midwife, and she experienced a lot of her own racial dilemmas there in Russia, and then they came back in the seventies and then they became the leaders in these different disciplines. And Which
0: areas. is, I watched a documentary and I don't remember what it was. It's interesting your mom's experience in Russia because I watched a documentary and they were talking about how Russia was really trying to recruit African-Americans saying that, hey, listen, we're part of communism. We're all comrades and there is no racial strife here and no, no bigotry here.
1: That's a lie. That's not true, but I think they were taking the advantage of what was happening in the U.S. to make that case yeah. and saying, "Hey, there's you know in our socialist way of life, we everyone's equal, and we can give you that equality and respect that you're not getting in the United States." So, but my mom's experience was really tough. She actually was in Ukraine, so although what's happening in Ukraine, she remembers you know the different towns. So she was in Ukraine because a lot of Chagians are in Ukraine right now when this one started. A lot of Africans, are, you You don't think about that. Wow. And so she ended up going to France and eventually coming back to Chad. So that's kind of the history of Chad. But the history that I really delved into was the church history. Ooh. So the first missionary into the region in 1922 Wow. came from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Really? Yep. He was from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Really? Yep. I was. <laughs> So I'm like, I tell people it's funny because... I went from Dallas to Seattle, and when I was looking for college, my first choice of college was actually the University of Colorado at Boulder. That's where I wanted to go, right? So I tell like, Eau Claire was already in the makeup of what God was doing. There's nothing I could do about it. <laughs> I, I just had to accept that Eau Claire was in that. And, and so the first missionary came there in 1922 and established in what is present-day Cameroon, and I think he had gone into the region, which is Chad, and then came back. And then missionaries out of Canada, I can't remember what uh, one of the provinces, they're the ones who went to uh, Cam—what present day Cameroon, met this guy, and he's the one who helped them go into Chad mm-hmm. and then into the region where my father grew up and my grandfather. And that's where my fa- grandfather became a Christian and then how Christianity entered my family. So that's kind of a condensed uh, history of that. but. Uh, Like I said, there's always a linear and a purpose of how God works. (laughs) Mm.
0: So what was it like then you being in your early 20s back there?
1: It was hard. Honestly, I mean, I was, again, 21, 22. The first two years were really, really tough because I was looking for work. And for the first three months, I, I didn't have a job. Here I have a U.S. degree. I speak English. Couldn't get a job. Fortunately, my aunt helped me. She worked for a government organization that helped people find jobs, careers. So she connected with somebody who worked for the oil and gas industry Mm -hmm. and they hired me just because of her. So I went to Southern Chad where the oil fields were Mm -hmm. and my first job was a radio operator. So I would, yeah, this chair here, I don't know how, how big it is, but I would sit in a chair for 12 hours with the radio and my job was to communicate with the oil rigs. So if they have any issues, they wanted to talk to somebody that, that radio me and then I would deliver the message. And I'm sitting there thinking, I got a degree. What am I? <laughs> why am I sitting here? Well, first, I need to work. And I think three months in, I was talking to somebody on the radio and delivering messages back and forth. And there was some issue. Two days later, that guy was talking on the radio. He came and said, he saw me and said, was I talking to you two days ago? I said, yeah, I was the only one here. He said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Chad. He's like, no, the guy I was talking to is not Chad, because my accent and everything, like, no way. And I, and I gave him my, my background. He said, I'll talk to you later. So in a nutshell, I think a month and a half later, he had done whatever magic he did and acquired me and, and you know, convinced <laughs> that I come and work for him yeah. in facilities in, yeah. in maintenance. Yeah. and maintenance. I became his admin. And so our job for the entire camp was to keep you know, the camp functioning. Yeah. And so I got to be part of a staff of, I think, 30 maintenance crew. His name is Steve Weschler. I still appreciate him doing that because he saw something in me and he saw my skills and the story I'd told him about my life. And so he really gave me a lot of responsibility in that work. But a year in, I was like, I don't want to do this because I was spending the rotation was you work for four weeks and you get two weeks off. So basically in a year, you end up doing nine months in the oil fields because you fly there. And then you end up doing three months in the capital. And without a job, you know, without any other prospect, I, I approached Steve and said, I can't do this anymore. You know, I appreciate your, your help. And so I resigned and I moved back to the capital and had no job. And it made me frustrated because, like, why doesn't anybody want to hire me? I mean, I have I, because in the oil companies, English is an advantage especially in a French-speaking country. And I found out why late. I found out pieces of why that happened. But for the next year, I didn't have a job, but I didn't sit idly. What I did, I think that was, I would say, is my first entrepreneurial experience. So my mom has a school. And so I asked my mom, could we use the building in the afternoons? And she said, yeah, it's empty. So what I did is I recruited some of my friends who'd gone to school in Ghana or gone to school in Cameroon and could speak English. Yeah. And so we came together and we created an English center to teach English. And so we were, you know, we put out advertisements and by word of mouth, because if you could speak English, it really helped you working for government organizations, working for international organizations. Yeah. And I remember I was making about $40 a month, but I was happy. I was proud of myself because I didn't have to pay rent. I was living in our own home. You know, food was provided. But with that $40, I, I could buy my own soap. Like yeah. I could buy my own soap. I could buy my own. I don't have to go to my mom and dad and ask for that. I'm 20 and I'm 22 years old. Yeah. You know, my parents were very supportive and they, because they understood the conditions of the country. That's really hard to get jobs. And you have to really know people and be connected. Right. And my father, again, to his credit, I didn't understand at the time, at the time. But I said, Dad, you got a lot of networks, a lot of connections. And I think his philosophy was like he wasn't saying I don't want to help, but I don't want to use my position to give you advantages that others don't have. Mm. Because you're already advantaged. And mm-hmm. it just, you know, you speak English, you got networks. But if I start using my influence to put you into certain places, then the work will be even harder for you because people will say you're only there because of your father. Yeah. But what happened is in that year, one of my students was actually working for the oil company, ExxonMobil, its affiliate. So its affiliate in country is it's called uh, SO. Mm-hmm. Right. He was working there. And one day he came to see me, and said, "Reuben, one of our teachers at the training center was asking if there's an orphanage, a local orphanage that he could donate stuff to, because there is a bigger orphanage. And so he didn't want to give to them because a lot of international organizations and whatever give to them. But he wants to see if there's somebody in the community. So he brought this guy. This guy's name was Dan. He's from Canada. And Dan came to the English Center and met me. And he was like, who are you? <laughs> you know, what's your story? You, see, you know, you're your yeah. but you're this and that. Yeah. And Dan said, I'll talk to you later. Three months later from there, I get a call from, I don't know if it's Dan. I don't remember if it's Dan, but somebody at the training center called me and said, we'd like to interview you and introduce you to our boss. So I came in for an interview. I sat down with the training manager. Her name was Deborah Hafso. Love that woman. And she really opened up doors and taught me so much. And she met me and heard my story said, Ruben, I want to hire you. Give me about a month. I got to work some things out. I can't hire you directly right now, but I can do... Anyway, she worked it out. And I came on board as a contractor with another organization. And then in a month, I think a month or two months later, I came under her as her coordinator of the training center. So that whole journey was just phenomenal because Mm -hmm. I'd been handing resumes out left and right and and accumulated in a whole different avenue that I never imagined. And I was the training coordinator for a year. I had about 20 apprentices under my leadership. I was in charge of making sure all of the apprentices or the students per se were getting all the technical training. They needed the English training. And so I loved that job. And then a year later, yeah, a year after that position, over in the human resource department, they created a position for a recruiter because the recruitment was done in Chad of engineers, but it was spearheaded by a team in Houston. <laughs> and the story goes, I was told later, like the guys in Houston and especially in Texas, Texas, they think they're a separate country. Like they don't, they don't have time to learn other languages. Like you're going to learn English. And they were like, we need somebody in Chad who speaks English very well, but who speaks Texan, <laughs> right? And uh, who can do y'all and all that drawl and everything. And somebody told the HR manager, I think who was from uh, Scotland, he said, Yeah, there's this guy over in training who's Chad, who speaks English really well. He actually went to school in Texas. So he went and talked to my boss, Deborah. And then Deborah sat me down and said, Ruben, they want you over. In human resources, I said, I have no background in HR. I said, you have English and you understand, you know, Texan and you're, you're pretty much American. If somebody met you, they would never know you were a Chadian. And she said to me, she said, Ruben, I would love you to actually take over my role as the manager of the training center and run the whole operations. But in this business, when we do cutbacks, we usually cut training first. So if you are looking to do a long-term career, you need to be over in HR. And so she facilitated all that. And I moved into HR as the head of recruitment uh, for two and a half years. So I was helping the different managers as they planned their you know, two, three years out of how to do recruitment. And then we would do advertisements. We would do the interviewing process, making sure the contracts were put into place. And what I brought to that role was, you know, was a couple of things. One is communication. Because nobody was really talking to, for example, they weren't talking to the legal department about contracts. And so people were getting into trouble. So I said, why? Well, before we sign a contract or even offer a contract, I would literally take every contract and sit down with the legal guy who's a ch- trusted guy. I loved him. He walked me through a lot of stuff. And he said, and then one day he said, Ruben, this is the first time where HR actually comes and sees me before they hand contracts to people. Because when they do that, then I have to come in. Afterwards and clean up the mess. And so it really reduced his workload by sitting down with me at the front end and saying, No, you can't say that. The Chadjian law says this. You have to do, and we walked, and then that's when we would offer a contract. And I sit down with security to do background checks to make sure all of the degrees and stuff they gave us were really well. So I really coordinated all of that and did that for about two and a half years and really enjoyed that role. I enjoyed my team as well. So that was about, so I spent about three and a half years in the oil and gas industry.
0: And what'd you do after that
1: after that i quit <laughs> it's like and i'm not a i don't tell if i'm a quitter but i was searching for something basically steve like and the reason i resigned was because i was struggling i was really struggling and what i mean by that is when exxon mobile builds anywhere in the world they build to u.s standards so that means their office in chat mm-hmm. electricity 24 7. Food, like especially in the oil fields. I tell people when I went down to the office there, the only time I'd know I was in Africa is when I would go to a window and I would see the villages. And I said, But if I just turned my head and wasn't looking out the window, I could call Houston. There was a refrigerator. The cafeteria was bigger than my college cafeteria. It was crazy. I just, I was like, I'm literally in the United States in this building. Yeah. And that's the, just a building in the oil fields out, you know, but in town. I'd go to the office, have air conditioner 24-7, electric, and then I'd walk out the door and I'm back in the third row in chat. I go to my house. so It's mud brick. It's not even block cement brick. I don't have electricity because we literally have power cuts for two months. No power. So I'm walking around. Outhouse, you know, all of those things I, I refer. And then in the morning, I go back to the office. I'm back in the United States, basically. And so I was saying to myself, if I'm going to be in Africa, I really want to be in Africa. That means I want to be using my skills and and the things I've learned to help in the local communities, in the villages. And I just wasn't finding opportunities. But I did find a local organization towards the end of that that was doing some stuff in rural Chad. And I was in the process of actually, I think I just got to the point where they were going to give me a contract. It was going to be a big salary cut. Right? Again, when I tell people I was working for an oil company, was affiliate, I always add affiliate. It doesn't mean I was earning U.S. salary. I was earning a local salary. So I think $800 at that, I was yeah, cuts on me and things. On. So I was going to earn about between $800 to $1,000 a month. Yeah. So when I was going to go work for this local nonprofit, I was going to be earning maybe only $200, $300. Mm. But I was going to go anyway. Yeah. Because, again, you talk about my father. My father ingrained some things in me. It's like it's the purpose. What is it that you're doing? Yes, you need to feed your families. Don't forget that. But at the end of the day, what is it you're trying to accomplish? And what solidified it for me is in 2008, there was a coup, coup d'etat, another government overthrow. And that by, in 2000, that was my fourth one in my life. 79, 1990, 2006, and 2008. Yeah. And I'll make this really condensed because I was, it was a Friday, I think in late January, we were having a meeting, the HR staff meeting, and then I said, I'm going on vacation because I had vacation days. And my boss actually said, Ruben, you need to stay. I said, no, because in December I stayed. You asked me to stay then. And so I left. Literally Thursday, the rebels, Chadian rebels who are in Northern Sudan in the Darfur region, that's where they hide themselves, and then they kind of make attacks, they head, and then they back off. And, they, and so that's been going on. I don't know what got into them. They said, we're going for the capital. We're going for the president. And so they made a mad dash, and they were about I don't know 75 kilometers. I don't know if that's miles. I gotta learn all that stuff. But they were literally at the doorstep of the capital, and by Thursday evening they would broken in the capital, and there was fighting. I was in Nigeria when all listening to the BBC, following up on that. My cousin was calling me, or my actually my I had a satellite phone from the company to use for emergencies. So I called my admin assistant, and she, I said. She was at home. She said, they sent everybody home until further notice. They began to evacuate all the foreign nationals, you know, the Americans, the British, who are all that. They actually—it was really late—but they put them on a plane. They sent them to Cameroon and then they dispersed them to whatever country they're from. I turned around and headed back. All right. <laughs> That's because at my house I had my cousins living with me, and I, and I wanted to know what was going on. And so I get back, and Cameroon borders Chad. And the town in Cameroon is called Kouseri That borders Jemena, the capital. So I get to Kouseri. I remember, I think I got there Friday night. I remember walking up on the riverbank because there's a river, Shire River, that divides the both of us. And I remember looking across and I can see the smokestacks from the bombings. You can hear the fu- gunfire taking place. You can see a few people coming to the river, coming over into Cameroon. And I said to myself, it's like seven days ago, I was just in a meeting in the capital. Yeah. I mean, it just blew my mind. And in the course of the month we were there, well, the two months I was there before people felt comfortable enough to come back into Chad. Anyway, just to make a long story short, the temp was crushed, right? The president, through some resources and some miscommunication with the rebels and amongst them, just decided not to attack. And and so in Kusuri, what then happened is the UN came in three days later working with my brother in Iowa. He sent me some money through his friends. They collected about $6,000. They sent that to me through uh, Western Union and I used that to buy food for a lot of the uh, basic refugees. I was a refugee, right? And that experience, I realized that once we got back that I could no longer work for ExxonMobil. I was like, that struggle, that whole situation made it clear. Get back into Jemena I remember the offices were still empty because people had evacuated all over the world. And over the next six months, eight months, people slowly started coming back. I'd resigned. Mm -hmm. Then I came to the U.S. the summer of 2008 just to work at a Bible camp in Amory, Wisconsin, that that I had worked in during the summers when I was in college. And I remember the 4th of July that year. As the fireworks were going off, I'd be jumpy. And that's really my first experience of trauma because I was hearing all this gunfire just like three months ago in February. And so now you have the 4th of July. And I remember that I had to get up and I went into the house, covered my ears, and so I wouldn't hear the firecrackers. Mm. It was just, that was the first time of like, this is, tr-, like I couldn't control the, the continuous. So I did that for summer and I went back to Chad and I became a third and fourth grade social studies teacher for a local school. So in a nutshell, the American school which is headed by the State Department. The State Department said, we're tired of Chad. There's a coup. There was a coup in 2006, there's all these rebels. So by that time, there wasn't a single American kid in the American school. It was all uh, Chad, it was Chadian kids and some Nigerians and diplomat kids and stuff. And so they said, we're, we're gonna shut down the school. But one of the teachers is a Chadian and she approached the principal, an American lady, and said, hey, I'd love to continue the education you know, for the Chadian kids here because it's a lot better education than they get locally. And so they agreed. So they had six months left on the housing of the principal where she lived. They left her all the books, all the computers. They had two vans. They left that all to her Mm. to build up. And so she had approached me, the teacher. Her name is Bonoji and said, hey, I have the school. Would you come in and, and help me? And I was a teacher for one year. No teaching background, but I'll learn. I'll learn whatever needs to be learned. It was a great experience. Frustrating at times because, again, I don't have that background in teaching. Plus, my students spoke three different languages, Arabic, English, and French. So I had kids who could speak French but didn't speak English. (laughs) Or kids who spoke Arabic didn't speak English or French. But hopefully with social studies, you know, history, you know, you can kind of work around that. The following year, Bonoji got a scholarship, a Fulbright scholarship, to go to University of Nebraska to work on her PhD. And so she approached me and said, Ruben, would you be willing to become principal of the school? Because I was the second highest degree person there with a bachelor's. I said, sure. And so I took over, It called Ness, Jemena English International School. Uh, I took over and served there for two and a half years. And all of the skills I learned working in corporate With ExxonMobil and the corporate, I was able to utilize that to build financial systems, organizational systems, everything. So we had, when I took over, we had 45 students. When I left, we had 175. We had five staff members. When I left, we had 30. Mm. So from there, I actually then moved back to the States. There was an opportunity to go to seminary. I came to know the Lord when I was a junior at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, actually through the Navigators Ministry because I joined them. And, and then when I came to know the Lord, I actually wanted to switch my major to religion and then go on to seminary. But that would have put me in school beyond four years. So I stayed with my political science, graduated, tried to get into Trinity, tried to get into other. Didn't work out. And then I ended up going home. So when this opportunity came up at Grand Rapids Circle Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I took the opportunity to go. It was actually a friend of mine who kept pushing me, who knew me in college. And was like, Ruben, you need to go. You need to. I didn't want to come, Steve. I was like, I'm okay in Africa. I got used to not having electricity, had my community. What made Africa hard was not the conditions anymore. No, what I loved about Africa is I could handle the conditions, but I just loved the communal and supportive life of Africa. That's why I wanted to stay. I didn't look towards the weekend. Every day was a weekend. Like I go to work, we come home, I sit, put my chair in front of my house, people are walking to join you, you know, you would either have a drink and then everyone go, and you do that repeatedly, you know, friendships, community, and I just love that lifestyle. But um, to come to seminary was great because I came for two reasons. One was to really understand my Christian faith beyond just Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, but I wanted to understand that theologically too so I could have a debate with someone what was like a Muslim and I could understand the history of the church, you know, the history of our like, apologetics and all of that. And so that was great. But I also did a course in organizational leadership and development, which looked at adult education and then how do organizations function. And that was my degree. I wasn't going to do an MDiv. I'm not, those MDiv folks, they're a special breed of people. right? But I was like, I'm not a pastor. That's not my vocation. That's a false dichotomy. So I was listening to Brian talk about you know, being a car salesman, and that was kind of his ministry. No, I said, that is your Christian vocation, just like the pastor has his. And we create this false dichotomy within our Christian faith. They say, if I go to seminary and I get an MDiv and I pastor a church, I'm... De-. So the guy who's a mechanic and the guy who's doing facilities and the person who's going to their job, on a, they're not serving the Lord as believers? This to me is nonsensical. And I will fight anybody on any level on that because I don't see that as a, you know, anything biblical. When you're in Christ and serving the Lord, whatever He has you doing is part of His will and part of your ministry to know Jesus and to make him known, as the navigators say. So I did, I graduated with uh, my degree. And during that time, not a small thing, I reconnected with a lady I knew in college, her name is Michelle, and eventually we got married. And So she's from that, Poinette, she's from Poinette. Poinette, <laughs> Wisconsin, Poinette, Wisconsin. Which, is,
0: which is in my home county of Columbia County, yep, south Columbia. central Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And we were talking last night, and you were like, All right, so where in Wisconsin are you from? I said, Partyville, and you were like, I know where Partyville is because I talked to a hundred people that are from Wisconsin or they spent time in Wisconsin, yeah, Partyville. Now, uh, where is that? That's 30 miles straight north of Madison, mm-hmm. and Partyville. I know where, not only did you know where it was, but you went to your bachelor party. My bachelor,
1: it was four of us, five of us. We were driving around and I was like, what are we going to do? This is like, there's nothing here. (laughs) We're not going to go to Madison, which is 30 minutes. And so we we're driving it was like Partyville it was like Park and this bar was open. What was it called?
0: The Caddy Shack. The
1: Caddy Shack. I actually went and looked at pictures to make sure like is that I remember the bar. I said yeah. like, that's the bar we sat at. Caddy Shack. So we Shack
0: burgers. It's like it's the place to get a burger in Partyville. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go back and have and a drink. We got to go back and have that. Oh dude, and yes. they have a root beer on tap. 1912 I think is the name of the brand of the root beer and it is so good. It's, in my opinion, the second best root beer I've ever had. The best I've found here in Colorado Springs, and it's like outstanding. But let's,
1: let's put that on our calendar, man. Dude. Yeah, dude. So I remember going in there, and that night I actually drank a lot. So in the morning I actually threw up, <laughs> but I wasn't was so tasty that I couldn't get married. So I yeah. So I got married uh, June thirtieth, two thousand thirteen, and then my wife moved with me to. She joined me in Michigan. I graduated and the first thing I wanted to was go back to Africa. Mm -hmm. There was zero desire to be in the U.S. And I tell people, it's not because I didn't like the U.S. You know, I talked about purpose and what is, and I saw what the needs were in Africa and that I could use what God had given me there.
0: You and I talked about this last night. And I told him when I was talking about my trip to Sudan, South Sudan, in just right on the Darfur border. Yeah. I remember flying over Africa, both on the commercial flights, as well as on the missionary aviation fellowship, fellowship yeah. little plane that they flew us into South Sudan on. And I remember just looking at just the vastness of the, con- of the continent mm. and all that resource. I mean, oil rich and just so much potential so much human potential there Mm -hmm. that the thought hit me in not only while there, but ever since that if Africa were to really get the corruption under control and establish a real rule of law, get the judicial system in order and really equip the people, equip that human capital, that human potential that is there. I said those countries in Africa, and if they got on the same page and they became like a united or a large part of that continent Mm -hmm. became united, Mm -hmm. they would be the next world superpower and dwarf China and us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my prayer for that continent Mm -hmm. is indeed that. Mm -hmm. And so guys like you that have Mm -hmm. this heart for that continent Mm -hmm. and those countries that really want to
1: tap into that human potential. Mm -hmm. I mean, my man,
0: I love you and respect you and,
1: yeah, and, and to your point, that was the original. When the early leaders in the '60s who took over, that was much of the vision. I can't remember the first president of Central African Republic, uh, the small little country which is in civil war right now. I mean, people have forgot about that. Yeah. It was big early on, but that was his vision because when he and even, um, Nkumra of uh, Ghana, yeah, him and others, they were actually they met. I don't think it was in '63. I think in Accra to talk about that very issue of a United States of Africa, right? But I think, I'm not gonna get too deep into that, but as I read history and know more of it, they were undermined by a lot of these colonial and West, because they knew that that division, if they formed together, they would, to your point, be... Stop being exploited, really. exactly. And they could then argue at a level or debate at a level and be respected. And there was a fear that they'd be too big and too strong. And so that division began. So you have now, you have a, then you have that generation that was then assassinated. There was a lot of assassinations, oh, like Lumumba and everything. Yeah. And that whole generation, and then you had a generation of leadership that didn't have that vision of unity, who then began to rule. And hopefully now that's starting to change. Do you, in, do, in do you, do you
0: feel that's changing with younger I feel generations? It's changing.
1: Yep. There's Beautiful. a lot. Yeah. There's like Beautiful. presidents, like our president, Sen. Abre, he was actually tried in Senegal. Before, you wouldn't try a former president. He was tried and found guilty The in president? Yes, Chadgin president who was overthrown in 1990. Yeah. Now, presidents want to hold power because they now know that if they get out of power, they can actually be taken to court. Held Before accountable. They yeah, held accountable. Before they, they that fear wasn't there. And there's more young people starting to speak up and all of that. That's beautiful. So, um, That's beautiful. We hope to get there. And we're trying to do more, not always political, but entrepreneurial, yes. business, Change, yeah. revamping education. My heart is more in vocational type of education. That's like either agriculture and farming or uh, welding. And so I follow on my own. It's like, what are organizations doing in Africa? I have a lot of questions. What are organizations doing in Africa? And how is it benefiting Africans? And how long have you been there? Yeah. Like, and so I want to be very careful how do it, but as an African who's been, again, very great deal of advantages, how am I using that voice and that history to push a little bit and challenge organizations and challenge myself and challenge other Africans in a way that we can work together. Yeah,
0: All right. You have a heart for Africa and you were there.
1: Yes, in Zambia. Ended
0: up coming back to the US. You're currently in the Dallas area. Mm -hmm. Why Zambia?
1: So Zambia, we were in Zambia in 2020, my wife and I.
0: Why Zambia? Why not Chad? Why not go back?
1: So, oh yeah. So this is where I deviate on that. So when I had graduated in 2015, I was looking for opportunities back in Africa. Yeah couldn't find anything. And I couldn't just get up and go. I'm married, right? And I have to find a job and care for myself. So I ended up getting involved in the life of Grand Rapids. I did a lot of stuff with uh, local uh, nonprofit organizations, which I learned about engagement, community engagement and partnerships, which was great. Got into prison ministry. A lot of stuff I learned in that five years, which even made my skill sets even more, which I could then use back in Africa. Then in early 2020, Again, I don't believe in coincidence. I went to see a friend of mine who builds apps. It's called Michigan Labs. I met them in church, do phenomenal things. And I just went to see him. I said, hey, I need an app. I want to raise funds for Africa. So, you know, if I'm sitting with somebody, they can go to the app and donate right there. And so he basically told me, "You yeah, I, you wouldn't have enough money to pay me for it. I'm like, that's fine. But, you know, <laughs> I wanted to ask anyway. But he said to me, hey, I know a group of people in my church who are doing work in Africa, in Zambia. I'll connect you guys. So long story short, he connected us and things were just fell right into place. Boom, 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 boom. Even with COVID, when we actually were going to Ghana, I got so frustrated, Steve, that I was, I was like, I called a friend in Ghana. His father, my father went to seminary. I said, I said, Timothy, I want to come to Africa. What are you guys doing? I'll fundraise my own support to come, right? And so I was in the process. We, we bought tickets to go to Uganda, right? To do an exploratory trip for two weeks and then come back and raise support to move back. Then COVID hit, Uganda shut down, a lot of countries shut down. Zambia was one of the first countries to open up. So it, it opened up in September. By that time, I'd already quit my job. And so I was doing some community stuff and I got a job with Amazon for five months. So that's why Zambia came in just through my friend because that mission was already there. So the whole vision was great. It was, it was developing around agriculture. So chickens, cropping, and dairy. I don't know anything about chickens. Yeah. But my role there going there was to be head of the vocational center there because the idea was you recruit 18 to 24 year old Zambians, they come out to the farm for two years, they learn the discipline in agriculture, these three disciplines of dairy, cropping and agriculture. They learn to grow, the products are sold, the revenue comes in to support the organization and to pay the apprentices, Mm -hmm. right? And we call them apprentices on purpose because a student is different than an apprentice. And so the idea is that in two years, they have capital and they have skills. So then they can go out and start their own farm. Phenomenal, and that's what Africa needs. That type of approach, whether it's in IT, you know, whether it's in you know, management, that thing. And so the, the 11 months we spent there, we got to know the Zambian people, beautiful country. For me, it was an opportunity to pour back into fellow Africans. And so I thought about it too. That's just like, here is a Chajan who grew up in America who's helping Zambians. So to your point about that cross-cultural stuff, as Africans ourselves, we need to be like, okay, I'm going to go to this country. I'm going to go to this country. I'm going to do this. And so um, to make a long story, we had to come back because our immigration was denied. But there's a whole history behind that whole issue where the organizational leadership component I told you earlier about my education came into play. That a lot of the stuff in Africa is just around, we have the resources and we have the human capital. What we need is the organizational development and we need execution. All right. And that's not only at the government level. We're always thinking at the high. I'm a political science guy, so I can understand that. But no, it's the grassroots. It's the churches and the small businesses and developing that at the people. It's not nation to nation for me. It's people to people Ooh, yep. approach. Yeah. And especially within the, as Christians, it's even more important for us because the way we do things and we execute things is also a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not always the outcome of that. I fed this person and I raised, but how'd you do it? Did you develop relationships? where people, were the natural abilities that God gives us, were those nurtured and were people developed? Because people are human beings, right? So they want to even move up. Like you don't want to spend 20 years if you have skills that can help your organization. So how do you do all of that? So we had to come back. We came back broken and God used, and so it's a year in November, no, July 7th is when we moved back. So uh, last year, so we've been back a year. God has really done work to heal me. And I've been reading this book. I don't know if I mentioned it to you the other day uh, by Peter Greer and Chris Horst. Peter Greer is the CEO of Hope International. They do microfinancing throughout Africa's Christian organization. He's written a number of books and I have most of them. But the one he wrote, yeah, this year was the gift of disillusionment. I was disillusioned, not with Zambia, not with its people, but with the organization I was with. To profess to be believers, but did things in a way that I was like, even my, when I was working for ExxonMobil, they didn't treat me like this, or they didn't do things like this. I mean, they were more in, of developing people. But I walked away disillusioned and reading this book, that really the premise is when you go through stuff like this, it has stories. Do you look inward or do you look upward? Mm-hmm. It's basically the gist of it. And so the reading it is how do I look upward towards God? What has God taught me in this? How, what, what, and that's being unfolded and unveiled. And so even like with Holy Smokes, the thing that attracted me to it and I follow is the camaraderie. Mm. You know, again, I'm learning about cigars, but the people I've been connecting with have similar stories who've been in church and who've been who I know they love Jesus and they love the church, but they know about church hurt. They know about all that, but they refuse to walk away from the church and they used to refuse to walk away from Jesus. But they need a circle where they can talk about these things freely. And unfortunately, the church is not, the official church or the structural church is not built for that Mm -hmm. sometimes. And so that's why Holy Smokes has grown on me. But my desire is to get back to Africa and Zambia in particular, because that exploratory trip we were hoping to do in Uganda, I consider 11 months as an exploratory trip. I know the country. I know people. So it would be an easy transition into ministry. But from there... It's to plug into Chad. So I have projects going on in Chad right now, projects going in Zambia, but it's also to network other Africans on the continent and how to work to keep Africans in Africa to help develop. And there's ways, there's ways to do it. You know, I could go on for a millennial like that. So I'm just, you know, in the process of finding that support of individuals who would like to back me in those initiatives because I'm a people person. And I've traveled a lot on my own dime and through some money I get. But it's, it's hard for me to, I can do a Zoom call and then I just like, I'm going to come see you. I'll take one, let's talk because there's a human connection that comes even from my culture is the connectivity of sitting down with somebody. Even for 30 minutes an hour and you begin to build trust and you begin because you need that for when projects go bad and they will go bad that that person knows that you whatever happened you did not do on purpose because they know you. They see you in baby. your eye. Fail forward. Yeah, fail forward. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
0: <laughs> Let's get to rapid-fire questions, my man. Mm-hmm. Rapid-fire. Fire. fire. <laughs> All right, how's that stick treating you?
1: It's great. See, I've, I've talked more than I've smoked, that's, <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> it's that's a lot easier. It's
0: the M.O. Yeah. That, um, when it comes to being the guest on the podcast. Yeah. When did you first try cigars or pipe?
1: The first time I even had a cigar was in college. I don't even know what type of cigar it was. It was just a cigar. we were out in, the, in Minnesota, somewhere in northern Minnesota on a farm, and my cousin had cigars and said, here, try it. That was, again, when I was in my 20s. And like I said, I've smoked more cigars in the last two months than I have in, in the past 43 years. <laughs> or when <laughs> I could smoke, so in the past 20 so my years. Yeah.
0: Have you ever tried pipe?
1: Yeah, I have a pipe, actually. So I have a, I'm learning that, too. Nice. And there's, there's a Virginia type of pipe that you had that's kind of a sweet. I learned that in Arkansas. I was going to uh, Wisconsin and I stopped there. And so a guy was teaching me about cigars. So I like cigars. I, mean, I, was, I like pipes as well. Yeah.
0: You're just brand new into it. Mm-hmm. Do you have one that you're like, ooh, this is probably near the top? This is one of my favorites.
1: Um, again, my father's cigar that yeah. I'm smoking now. Cause I just like, when I got it, it's like my father, I just thought about yeah. my dad, <laughs> you know, he doesn't know, but he would not <laughs> approve it at all. But I think I got it because of that, of how much respect I have for my father. And then there's the, I think the acid, there's a Betty. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember, but it's one of the acid cigars and the wrapper is more sweet. Yeah. It's kind of a sweet flavor to it. Yeah. And I like that cause I introduced my cousin to it and he's part of Holy smokes. He actually, nice. he's in the States for a year for a training program. And when I was in Arkansas, uh, we sat down and I said, this is the first. Because it's, it's a milder one and yeah. it's a really good introduction yeah. into cigars.
0: Do you have a favorite liquid pairing with your smoke?
1: No, I'm still learning that. that so I'm going I'm to learn about parents. I think Megan talks a lot about this. I want to yes. get school, learn from her. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Marvel or DC?
1: Uh, no, I've, I've never not, been not, into... Not
0: into superheroes? Not into superheroes. Star Wars or Star Trek?
1: I know about it, but not into it.
0: Yeah. Favorite I, food?
1: Favorite food. I love fish and I love natural fish directly from the river. Carp is what we do a lot of Really? Yeah. Really? Because there, what I would go do I'd, when I was living in Kusri, I'd cross by canoe. I'd go to work. So I'd cross canoe and go into Jamana and then go to work. But every time I crossed, there'd be people out there selling fish. I'd buy a whole bunch of fish and they'd fry it. And I just love that natural fish. Fish here, you know, sits, you know, it's with all the products and stuff in, in Africa, did you have fish when you were in Sudan? Yeah. No, I don't think we did. Okay, I don't think yeah, we did. but it, yeah, fish is my go-to food.
0: Remember having goat?
1: Goat. Remember
0: <laughs> you know, having goat?
1: Quick, quick. Remember having some beef? Yeah, goat is good. Yeah. And the head of the goat is good too. You know, so we, we, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the head and the hoof. So what we do is we usually give those to kids. Yeah, and so younger kids, so they'll burn all the fur off of it. Yeah. and make a soup. So put it into a yeah. bowl, let it cook over overnight, and it becomes a phenomenal soup. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you into sports at all?
1: Uh, I used to run track. And that's so I right. Just, yeah. I, yeah. I just, uh, the world championships just happened yeah. in Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. So I've been following that and some oh, of the yes. runners from Jamaica and the runners from the US. So yeah, track is, I like to run. I should run more, but yeah, I like track. I know about other sports, but what, I don't, I'm not. A, what, I'm not what's,
0: a what are the big sports in Chad? Um,
1: soccer. Soccer. Yeah, football, 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 Foot, football, football, yeah. So that's everywhere. Everyone plays football. Yeah. There's actually, but. Rugby is taking off because that's in Zambia. I didn't know much about rugby. But again, Southern Africa was colonized by the British, so they brought in rugby. And then there's, um, what's that, horse polo? Yeah. And cricket is huge. But in the region of Chad, it's just mostly football.
0: Do you have a nickname growing up Uh, or in college?
1: No, just Ruben.
0: Uh, Ruben. Yeah. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you?
1: Unusual fact. I know, I do not a fact, but I know how to do a successful coup. The four elements of doing a successful coup. What are they? What are they? Number one, you have to take all the major roads in and out of the country, out of the, yeah, in the city. And most African cities usually have one or two ways to get in on a major road.
0: Really?
1: Right. You don't, it's not like the U.S. where you could come Interstates, into- Interstates. Yeah. You, from and 100, highways. No, you can't. Like in Chad, you could maybe two major ways, from the, one from the south, one from the north. You have to take that to keep from any reinforcements coming in. Right. You have to take the airport right, to keep goods, again, to monitor what comes in and what goes out. You have to take the radio station. Communication is key. So the coup that happened in 2008, a lot of people died. Why? Because the government was saying to people, no, we got it all under control. The rebels are not, they're far away when they're literally on the doorstep. Yeah. So nobody could leave. They were just listening and believing. Yeah. So by the time they got in, nobody could evacuate. So communication is key, right? And so the government shut down all the solar, uh, not the solar, but the... um mobile phone mm-hmm. communication to keep the rebels from talking. So that affects us. We can't, it's hard. So you, you had to either use the satellite or whatever. And the last thing, which I don't understand, you have to take the presidential palace.
0: It's a symbolic. It's symbolic. Yeah, it's the symbolic
1: nature of that. Exactly. The rebels had the entire city in 2008. They had all of it. People were like, yeah, we're overthrowing Debbie. Yeah, he's going to overthrow. But they hadn't taken the presidential And Debbie was still there. He had surrounded with tanks and there was a French... A high-level military guy that actually flew in was trying to convince him to leave. He said, hey, you've lost. They have this. He categorically refused. He basically said, well, I'm going to burn this city down. You will kill ah. me here, which will cause a lot of fighting. Yeah. So thankfully, the rebel, it didn't happen because it was going to be a repeat of 1979. Yeah. Let's say he had left. Now you have all these different rebel fra- uh, factions fractions fighting each other, yeah. and they're fighting in the city. And then people are caught in the, in the crossfire. Yeah.
0: If you could live anywhere in Africa, Mm -hmm. I assume Africa, where would you live?
1: I want to live in Chad. It's hard. It's difficult.
0: What's the terrain like?
1: Dry, flat. You know, the Sahara Desert. So from the capital all the way up is the Sahara, basically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of um, dust storms, everything. If you go further south in Moudini, you get more into vegetation because you're you're getting closer to Congo. So you can do more farming in that area. But it's hot. Not really humid per se, but really hot. to so it gets to 110, 115. Wow. Yeah. And my parents are back and they're struggling. So this is hot season. Hot season starts in March and runs all the way till August and then starts raining a little bit. I like that question because I learned, to your point too, I learned to look past the hardship and see the heart of people. Ooh. Because people still live lives there. Yes. When my Americans talk about Africa, they talk about the, oh, people are starving. and That is true. But life still goes on. Exactly. And so people still live. Yeah. right. And I can see past that, and I've been part of that. So I don't just see the hardship.
0: Yeah. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness?
1: I would say cultural intelligence and the desire to go to, place, to the hard places. My heart's really for the hard places, and I'll go and learn new things. Mm. I mean, I've, I, if you look at my career, I've held a multiple number of jobs. I'm a learner. I'll pick up on it, and i learn about people in that work. And that's a good way of developing relationships within then helps you in your overall work. You My greatest weakness, or one of many, I guess, <laughs> um, I think I have to learn to be more entrepreneurial. So I'm adding business aspect to a lot of the things I'm doing right now. And I think that's more of a technical weakness, but just trying to learn more of that, because I think that's the way to move forward in Africa mm-hmm. is around business initiatives and entrepreneurial initiatives and so i'm getting a crash course on that from my brother who's been in the business world for about 20 years though so.
0: who's been the greatest influence in your life
1: my father again just because of what he could have done in the u.s but he chose to go back to africa because his thing was what is the lord saying to me and that he will give his life yeah he'll give his life for his family but he'll give his life for other people because i grew grow up knowing that You know, if there was a situation going on, my dad's not walking away. He'll put us and his family safe and he'll stay there. He's had guns pointed at him and God has saved him from that. He's been in some very difficult situations. And I'm like, yeah, dad's like, I'm going. People are there. I'm going. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. Uh, I think outside of that, too, one of my greatest, he's already passed, uh, Bantu Stephen Biko. So he was a leader in South Africa. People know Mandela. He's the big name. But there were others there. As Mm -hmm. well, and one of them was Stephen Biko. He was the founder of Black Consciousness. So his thing was more about getting black people to understand their value Mm -hmm. and their importance. And I love his philosophy. He was assassinated by the South African government in 1977. He died September 12th, 1977. Yeah, Stephen Biko is one of the guys I learned a lot from him. Mm.
0: All right, final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and how is it contributing to your spiritual journey?
1: One, again, like I refer to the camaraderie, if you look beyond people who are judgmental with cigars and drinking, if you look beyond that, again, you look, and you look at people and hear their stories of how God has impacted this, like Kay says, he says, this is just a tool. The cigar is just a tool but it's how you're connecting with people and being open. And that's one of the things I definitely love about. And I needed that, like that was a need for me coming back from Zambia as I was being um, healed and being rebuilt. All right. What was the second part of that question was?
0: How is it contributing to, to your spiritual journey?
1: Um, definitely to be more open. I have a tendency to hold things in and I can go to my weakness and not speak a lot about my brokenness, but I'm speaking more about that. I think what Christianity has done is because it looks clean. But God didn't come for a clean. Like He came to save sinners, broken people. And as a church, we need to understand that, and we need to speak about those weaknesses and not put on a facade. Because now it's backfiring on us, because people don't look at these Christians. Had we told people, no, I'm am not a Christian because I'm good. I'm a Christian because I need a savior, because of A, B, C, or D. But the message over the years, if you're a Christian, you know you should not drink, or you go to church every day, or every Sunday. You yes, but you do that because of the power of the Holy Spirit and your brokenness. Talk about that and you will get people to, don't talk about, because once somebody comes into faith and they begin to fail, they're like, well, you told me it'd be a cakewalk. No, count your cost before you become a believer because the minute you become a believer, you are setting yourself up to be hated by the world. You're setting yourself up to fight all these passions in you. And so that is one of the things that for me, I'm learning more to talk about my brokenness and how God is using that for yeah. his good. Yeah. All
0: right. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, mm-hmm. living or deceased, yeah. who would they be? Can't name Jesus.
1: Okay. My dad, but he wouldn't smoke. <laughs> well, he, he, okay. Yeah, but anyway, I think.
0: As he starts to see what this has done for you, yeah, that might change. Yeah. And that's going to be a prayer is that he's just open enough that maybe he'll try or at least sit with you
1: He'll sit with me. Let me let me put that. He would sit. I yeah. think he would definitely sit with this group. Because I took, I'll give you a quick example. I took him to a prison. When I was doing prison ministry and yeah. they came, yeah. I got the ability to, to bring them into a prison. And I remember, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I remember my dad saying to me, he's like, I've been in ministry all this time. And you brought me into a prison because in the mentality, even in the US, but really in Africa, that someone who's been in prison is automatically bad. Mm-hmm. You don't understand the story. Mm-hmm. And my dad's like, and this is in the early 70s. He's 75, so he was 71. He said, I learned something new about my faith because wow. you brought me into this prison. Wow. So I looked beyond the bars. I looked beyond them being bad. Yeah. I think he, could, he would sit in this group and look beyond the cigars and look beyond the, and just say, hey, I don't do that for my own health and my just preference, but I, I want to sit and hear people's stories. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Another one against Stephen Biko.
0: Yeah. Whew.
1: Again, he, it, he, he is phenomenal. Wow. The way he was beaten, he was banned. They had the you know, banning and in, in, house arrest. He had a family, and he loved his family, but he wasn't going to allow that kind of, you know, that family structure to keep him from doing what he needed to do, and he died. Mm. You know, and that's hard in this generation. Like, because I have a family, I'm not going to do ABC. Then who's going to do the work? Yeah. The call of Christ requires us unto death, yeah. not comfort. And I think about that, Ruben, are you willing to die for this faith that you claim? And as I get older, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, sometimes I get scared, I say, like, yes, if it costs me my life, so be it, because there's something waiting for me better. It's not that I'm going to be suicidal, but that's the thing. And I think Abraham Lincoln, I learned a lot about him in college. And there's a lot of some controversial stuff about racial stuff he said, and someone's bringing that up. But at the end of the day, he did a lot of good things. He was able to bring together, you know, and people forget that's when the Republican Party started, right? I'm not getting into politics, but that's when the Republican Party started because he was taking a principle at that principal stand. And if you look at his background of all the, you know, his son died, all of that. And then he was trying to deal with different opponents during that whole time before the Civil War. And he was able to bring them into a room. And despite their differences, was able to convince them of the greater good, right? There's a book, I can't, I'm trying to think of it as I'm talking. It's, um, I can't remember, but a phenomenal book my brother gave me along the lines of A Room of you know People with Differences.
0: Rivals. Team of, R- team of Rivals. Te- team of Rivals by team of Doris rivals. Kearns Goodwin. Hey, thank that you. Is such a good book. Team of that Rivals. Is, that is such I a good book. I want to read
1: that book. My brother said it's a good book of Abraham Lincoln. I read it is so good. That disagreement, but he was, a, I would love to sit down with I, him. I
0: grew up. In Wisconsin, and so Illinois was just south of us. Mm. And so, when I was in fourth grade, I was that nerdy fourth grader that my parents said, "Where do you want to go on vacation?" I said, "Springfield, Illinois." Okay. Because I want to see Lincoln's home, I want to see his tomb, uh-huh. and they took us down there, and I just ate it up. Oh and, yeah. And
1: uh, <laughs> yep, I'd love to see where they yeah. He's yeah. he's.
0: Oh. <laughs> I genuinely wonder how things in this nation would have been different, especially for those freed slaves had he lived and been able to finish out that second term Mm -hmm. and work on us, you know, bring a kind of groom a successor to take over at, to basically try and bring up after him and we wouldn't have those
1: Johnson years. Yeah, And, uh, no, he's just able to bring, and that's, yeah. you know, that's our, that's one of the things that I want to be able to do in Africa is bring all of these team of rivals. There's a lot of rivalry in the church yeah. and and said, Hey guys, we need to look at a bigger picture. I don't need to be the leader, but we need to lead together if yeah. we're going to change this continent yeah. and change the message. So, yeah. <laughs> all
0: right. Final question. Yeah. If we're to meet one year from today
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I got a special bottle that we're breaking out. Yeah. Maybe it's this year's Holy Smokes,
1: mm-hmm. bourbon. Yeah.
0: What are we celebrating?
1: We're celebrating my return to Africa and Zambia. I'm going to invite you. We'll some fish, smoke some cigars. Again, I say Zambia because I know it, but celebrating my return to Africa. Because when I went in 2020, Steve, my thing was like, this is it. The next 20, 30 years, I'm committing all here. And so I would love to be celebrating that instead of this back and forth that I've been doing is like, okay, Africa's my home. Mm-hmm. I come to the U.S. when I need to, but I wanna celebrate, like I put my last, because I'm in the latter parts of my life, all to helping develop the people, especially the young people of Africa. Because like you said, I can see beyond all of that and see there's literally young people who need leadership and who need to be able to, to see someone like me or others coming in and say, we will do this together. I will not do it from the office in the US. So, and I will, because I went out and packed the chickens with my apprentices. We walked the farm together. And I remember them saying, man, I've never seen a bwana. Bwana is the word for boss in Zambia that actually walked with us along the way. And so that would be celebrating that. Yeah.
0: Well, I will challenge you on one point. Okay. The latter part of your life, bro, Yeah. you're just getting started. Mm, all right. And what's coming with longevity, keeping us healthier longer, possibly even extending ages, lifespans. Yeah. Dude, you got a lot of work ahead of you. Yeah. Many, many, many,
1: many, many years. Yeah, I'd, I'd love my legacy to be remembered there because legacy is really important to Africans. I wouldn't say it's not important to Americans or to the West, but it's not as important. It is there, there are people who are still talking about great, great grandfather because he left a legacy in the hearts of so many people. And I want years from now, Kids who've never met, but it's like, man, there was this guy, Ruben Geraro, who I heard grew up in, the, but he came back and he served here. You know, we're building a school in my dad's village through some f- support from a lot of my friends from college here. And I remember going to the village and seeing the school. And I remember a woman walking by and saying, man, that's the son of of one of our own who came and did this for us. Right. I never grew up in the bad Man, that brought me to tears right, to be able to have, to be part of that in that small way.
0: Yeah. Ruben Geraro. Mm-hmm. Your first name again? Okay.
1: My first name is, and I, and I tell you, I break it down because yeah. I really believe in names. We just don't give names what to give names. Mean? So Ro-E-D. Ro-E-D. Ro-E-D means the road keeps growing. So Ro in Gumbai means road. E-D means to grow from. So if I cut a branch in that have that's E-D. My grandfather gave me that name because I'm the firstborn of his son. So that road keeps growing. Reuben is obviously, Hebrew means behold a son. So when I was born, when I was, um, my mom almost died with me, really? having me. It's a long story of yeah. the incompetence of the hospital and needing blood. But basically, my mom said, here's your son, right? So Ruben. And then Njeraro means one who builds a road. So your road, Njeraro is to do. So one who builds a road. And so in my family, we're not little road builders, but we build roads in whatever we're doing. My man,
0: yeah, I love you, brother. Yeah, I it's love you too, so, man. It's so good to get to know you <laughs> and hang out, and I look forward to, yeah. dude. We're gonna need to uh, do an update as things go, yeah, in Africa and open up, and hell, I might have to make a trip out there.
1: Hey, if I'm there, man. We're gonna do a holy smokes, Zambia, holy smokes, Chad, holy smokes, wherever we need to do it.
0: <laughs> Great. Thanks for being on the podcast, brother.
1: All right, thank you. I appreciate you. God bless. You. <laughs>
0: Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes Gear. That's right, we have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.com club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list as... I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks.